This is an ABC podcast. I am a, a sort of a chuck of all trades kind of thing. I put away the delivery when it comes. I work on service, making the burgers. I serve customers the other day. Uh, and I clean up like a general basic maintenance of the restaurant. And what has your organisation done to help you in the workplace? They come down and visit. They um, see how everything's going. They talk to my manager. They talk to me about challenges, like things I... If there is an issue, or sometimes just to see how I'm going. And then they um, they suggest ideas, for example, like forgetting where... A, when I'm putting away delivery, forgetting where a certain boxes go. So a particular product in a box, I might sort of forget where that goes sometimes. So uh, Max did a chart of where that product goes and now if I do get mixed up I can just look at that and go oh there we go and remember where that went. And is there something that surprised you that you weren't expecting when you joined the company? Uh, there was a little surprise. Um, <laughs> the uh, pace and the atmosphere is a lot more supportive than for example another fast food restaurant that I worked at when I was first working. The pace between those two places is like Mars and Venus. This place is so much more relaxed and friendly. It's good. It's awesome. And how does that help you, Jared? It makes it less stressful mm. when I'm learning things or I can approach people more easily with, with a problem. Yeah, no, it makes it, it, makes it um, perfect. And that's Jared Lowison kicking off today's topic, hyper-personalisation in the workplace what it looks like, the benefits, and how best to accommodate neurodiversity and individual skill sets. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and you're listening to This Working Life. Hyperpersonalisation is usually associated with tailoring services and products to individual consumers. Aaron McEwen, a behavioural and coaching psychologist, believes it should be applied to a post-lockdown workplace. Aaron, if this is the future of work, what does it look like? Well, I think it, it looks really different for everybody, and that's kind of the point behind it. Um, you know, in the world of, of uh, customer service, we um, spend a lot of our time trying to understand the very unique preferences and, and needs of our individual customers. And in a world where increasingly we have to look at employees as customers of work, then it makes sense that we start to really understand their unique individual preferences and needs. And I think when we design work around the optimum performance profiles of each individual employee, we end up with obviously much better productivity, but also much happier and more engaged employees. And we're looking at neurodiversity as our case study here. Mm. So let's drill down and go into that. How would it work in relation to something like neurodiversity? I think, you know, if, and this is the case for many things around accessibility, when we make environments more accessible, it benefits everybody, but it might particularly benefit those people who have restrictions around that accessibility. And so if you think about those people with neurodiversity, being able to tailor their work around when it works best for them. So when are they at their highest levels of attention, for example? Putting people with autism or ADHD into a typical nine to five 
work model doesn't actually work for many of them. So that's part of the challenge. So if you're able to tailor or adapt the work around when a person is going to be at their highest level of productivity, their highest level of attentional focus, that means that they're going to be able to more fully contribute to work in a way that leverages their strengths. What about the perspective of the employer here thinking, "Mm, how am I going to adjust things for individuals here? It sounds like it might be rather expensive. Uh, Well, I mean, expensive is a relative term. Um, So it could be, but it could also generate enormous savings uh, as well as opportunities. So, for example, one of the things we find is that there are skills shortages right across the board, particularly in the technology area. And yet what we know is that individuals who are neurodiverse are also grossly underemployed. So there's a couple of incredible case studies out there. Um, Chevron is one example. Chevron use neurodiverse software testing teams. Those teams are 30% more productive than their neurotypical counterparts. And it's also been found that individuals on the autism spectrum outperform their non-autistic peers in that environment with productivity increases that range from 48% to 120%. Uh, In another example, SAP and Hewlett-Packard, they report examples of neurodiverse employees participating on teams that generated really significant innovations. And one example they point out is a technical fix that saved the company $40 million. So yes, this tailoring might have some upfront cost, But what I would like to really point out is that that type of tailoring will benefit all employees and it could lead to the types of outcomes that I've just outlined. And in terms of these success stories, what type of mindset shift was required for an employer to go down this route? Um, I mean, quite a lot. You know, this is not typically how organisations operate. So there's certainly mind shift around building a business case for inclusivity and building a business case around how you uh, rearrange work and environments to better align with the needs of individual employees. But one of the things I'll say is we do this all the time. (laughs) You know, we do it with our high potential employees. Uh, We do it with other groups of employees when we recognise that, hey, if you treat people in a particular way and you give them autonomy, often it leads to better outcomes. So um, it's a little bit like the teacher's pets. Every organisation has teacher's pets. And we often adjust the work for those individuals in order to help them perform even better. Do you think it has to be top-down or could I as an individual uh, start talking about (laughs) hyper-personalisation in my workplace and start maybe job crafting around that? I think it's already happening. You know, the last conversation you and I had, Lisa, was on the great resignation and I'm absolutely certain that a very large component of that movement is being driven by people who are trying to hyper-personalise their own jobs and their own careers. So essentially, you've got people saying, I want to align my work with what I value, what I'm good at doing, and what I draw value and enjoyment from. So it is happening from the bottom up, (laughs) and it's happening in a way that's catching employers off guard. So there's a huge opportunity, I think, in terms of addressing the most difficult and challenging components of the Great Resignation by adopting this type of approach. If the organisation can help that employee find the right balance for them, why would they leave? So there's 
huge opportunity there. That's behavioural psychologist Aaron McEwen. You're listening to This Working Life. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and we're exploring the idea of a hyper-personalised workplace. Dr Emily Russo is a specialist in workplace neurodiversity. Emily, neurodiverse as a descriptor is quite broad. Can you give me some examples of people who are neurodiverse, please? Neurodiversity is the idea that humans don't come in a sort of one-size-fits-all neurological package and that neurological differences are the result of normal variations to the human genome. There are a number of conditions that come under the umbrella of neurodiversity, and they can be quite varied in characteristics. But generally, things that are included are things like ADHD, which is most commonly associated with hyperactivity or difficulty in focusing attention, autism, which affects how a person thinks, feels and interacts with others and their environment, dyscalculia, which is a difficulty with numbers, dyslexia, which can affect reading and spelling, dyspraxia, which affects fine and gross motor coordination, and things like Tourette's, which is characterised by involuntary sounds and movements. But look, there can be other variations as well. So things like obsessive compulsive disorder and even some people with brain injuries identify as being neurodiverse. The neurodiversity movement was actually started by an Australian woman, Judy Singer, in the 1990s, and it's based on what we call a positive sort of strengths-based approach. So I just mentioned some of the challenges that individuals with these various conditions face, but there are also corresponding strengths that they can have. And we heard some of the success stories from Aaron just before, and I like to call them superpowers, but what would you add in uh, some more benefits to an organisation of hiring neurodiverse individuals, Emily? So sort of some of the, the particular things, you know, people with autism can be really methodical, focused, logical, have intense concentration skills. People with dyslexia can have highly developed reasoning skills and can be great at problem solving. People with ADHD can be highly creative and think outside the box. So these are all things that organisations can sort of tap into. And what are the trends? Uh, Are we increasing the levels of employment of neurodiverse individuals? Look, it's estimated around 15 to 20% of the population is neurodiverse. Based on those numbers, we can estimate that around 3.5 million Australians are in some way neurodiverse. And unfortunately, the unemployment rates are shockingly high. So according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, unemployment of autistic people in Australia in 2018 was around 38%. So to put this in perspective, this is around three times the rate of unemployment of people with other disabilities and close to eight times the unemployment rate generally. However, organisations working in the sector actually estimate that the number could really be as high as 85% when you take into account the unemployment and the underemployment of all neurodiverse people. So by underemployment, we mean people who are working in jobs that really don't allow them to use their skills and abilities to their full potential. So, you know, potentially think think of someone with a master's degree sort of sweeping the floor. And there are probably two, two main reasons for these high rates. So firstly, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions that exist. So some people mistakenly think there's a correlation between neurodiversity and low IQ, or they may assume that neurodiverse individuals are less capable or maybe difficult to work with. And the second reason is that recruitment is generally centred around the traditional interview process and neurodiverse individuals may communicate, behave and interact quite differently, which means basically they have difficulty getting hired. 
And then even if they do make it through the recruitment process, there are challenges for them in the workplace. And if they're not supported, they can end up just dropping out of the workforce altogether. So, Emily, how can employers ensure that their practices are more inclusive? Yeah. So, look, there's great opportunity for businesses to capitalise on this segment of the candidate market by making really simple accommodations for neurodiverse candidates. So, the first thing to recognise is that these traditional recruitment practices are not designed with neurodiverse candidates in mind. So, in terms of actual recruitment, some things organisations can do um, include really carefully thinking about the job ad. So people, for example, autistic people often make very literal interpretations and they might only apply for a job if they meet every single one of those selected um, listed selection criteria. So rather than detailing a really long list of mandatory and desired attributes, it's probably more helpful just to list the tasks that the, the candidate would need to be able to perform in the role. At all stages of the recruitment process, give candidates as much information as possible. So really simple things like providing details on questions that might be in the interview, who will be in the meeting, um, what the room would be like, how to access the building, all things like that can be helpful. And probably also just using other means of assessing candidates apart from that sort of traditional formal interview. So you know, individuals with neurodiversities can have challenges in in social interaction and communication. And an interview is all about sort of being able to connect with an interviewer, making good eye contact, effectively communicate your skills. So some candidates are saying that they'd actually be able to prefer to show in in a practical sense what they can do rather than tell an employer what they can do. So some organisations are now offering things like, you know, skills-based assessments, um, having informal conversations, engaging in group activities, presentations, sort of work trials, practical assessments, which can also be um, just a lot more effective at understanding a a candidate's capabilities. Can you tell us, uh, from the point of view of a neurodiverse candidate, how do you recognise an inclusive employer or organisation? What are the things to look for? So obviously the number one thing is to look for an inclusive culture because there is a bit of a challenge in all of this and it's the issue of disclosure. So we know that neurodiverse people are wary of disclosing their diagnosis due to fears of sort of stigmatisation or discrimination. And then one of the biggest challenges for organisations, managers and peers in providing support and accommodations to neurodiverse individuals is that of the need for disclosure of a diagnosis or condition because it can be really difficult for employees to recognise who needs additional support without this. So therefore, I think firms really need to develop a culture where neurodiverse employees can feel safe and they're able to share their diagnosis without risk of discrimination or stigmatisation, or better yet, if You can create a culture where any employee can ask for support or accommodation to do their job well without actually having to give a reason or state a diagnosis. So my number one recommendation would be to look for employment in an organisation where the culture is inclusive of people with different backgrounds and experiences. And look, you should be able to tell how an organisation values and enables diversity and inclusion generally sort of on their corporate website or in social media posts. And some firms will even specifically highlight that they're neurodiverse, inclusive employees in their job ads. And I guess, look, if it's a smaller employer, then just have a chat to them about how they support employees and you will get a feel for how willing they are to be inclusive. And Emily, are there specific organisations that help workplaces uh, be more inclusive when it comes to neurodiverse uh, individuals? Yeah, look, there certainly are. I'm on the board of Autism Spectrum Australia, ASPECT. They're Australia's largest 
autism specific service provider and we support organisations in terms of sort of recruiting and then supporting them once they're in the workplace, supporting those individuals and the workplaces and the managers themselves. And there are other consultancies out there like Special Stern who are a a global organisation who focus just specifically on helping organisations engage with and support neurodiverse employees. workplace neurodiversity specialist, Dr. Emily Russo. You're listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong. Aaron, can I ask you what emerged for you listening to Emily? Oh, lots of things. And I think the one thing that always shines through for me when I hear about what organisations are doing to better attract uh, more diverse people into their organisations and create these more inclusive environments is that when we do this, everybody wins, Right. And just take the example of, of a, um, a job interview. <laughs> you know, we're in the middle of one of the tightest labour markets we've seen in living memory. And so every organisation could benefit by not putting this massive laundry list of required uh, things that they need for a job, but rather listing just the tasks that need to be done. Because it's, it's not just people with neurodiversity that don't apply for jobs if they see this incredible (laughs) uh, list of things that they may or may not be able to do. So I'm just always struck by the fact that when we create these more inclusive environments, we actually improve outcomes for everybody. So there's not much to lose in doing this. If we think about how do we create work that is going to enable more people to do it? How do we create environments that make people feel as authentic as they can possibly be and be their full selves when they show up? And how do we create environments and ways of working that allow people to use their strengths and reach their potential? Those are things that every organisation will benefit from. And I've got to ask you, so what was emerging for me is that this focus on strengths and openness Mm. might actually encourage people to, you know, play to their superpowers rather than to hide or non-disclosure. Can you build on that in any way, Aaron? Yeah, this is showing up in a lot of ways. And I love that you use the superhero analogy. (laughs) One of the things we talk about in leadership today is that if you think about the old models of leadership, and by the way, these are still the most dominant ones. They focus on individuals. And I often use the analogy, if you go back 10 years ago, the poster for the Iron Man movie, what it showed was, you know, Tony Stark, but you couldn't see Tony Stark, who, by the way, is a, you know, white Anglo-Saxon billionaire. He's hidden behind this suit of armour. And it's kind of like, we used to have this belief that there were these incredibly either talented or powerful people that could save us from the problems of the world. But if you look at the most, uh, I think it's still the most popular movie of all time, which is Avengers Endgame, the poster for that movie shows all of these diverse superheroes that all have their own strengths and, and, and weaknesses. They're partnered together. They're not wearing masks. They're more vulnerable. And so this is something when I think um, popular culture kind of picks up on what's really going on. And that is that there is no single person that has all of the skills and capabilities to take on the biggest problems of the world today. 
So what we need at the leadership level is diverse teams of leaders that can be deployed to solve particular challenges. And if we apply that then to the general workforce, we need diverse teams of people that bring different perspectives, that bring different strengths to the table. And this idea that we can kind of roll out the same old um, staid teams of people, it, it just doesn't stack up anymore. So I think there's lots of examples uh, that we see of that. So as we move into a world that is becoming more complex and less predictable, what we need is diversity of perspective and diversity of thinking and diversity of thought. It's that diversity that will help us solve these complex problems. So all organisations and, dare I say, society benefits when we are more inclusive of difference. And Emily, final word. Yeah, look, I think it's vitally important for firms to partner with neurodiverse individuals on this journey. It's a really diverse cohort of individuals, so one size doesn't fit all. Not mm. every neurodivergent person is the same. So I guess don't make assumptions. Get to know the person as an individual and ask people what adjustments can be made to support them. We talked a lot about sort of various accommodations, but not all of these accommodations will be relevant for every single individual. Therefore, I think it's really important, um, and I was encouraged by what Aaron said about you know, customising the workplace for the individual because I think organisations do need to be flexible in terms of interactions, workspaces, conditions, communication and management. Yeah, I think um, asking just really directly, what can an organisation do to be more inclusive? And I think we touched on the, the recruitment side, yep. but it's like, what does it look like inside an organisation that's getting it right? How does it feel? Yeah, so people within workplaces do face challenges and they can be interpersonal, so challenges around sort of communication and social interaction. So things just like, you know, clearer and more direct communication, so potentially favouring written over verbal communication, things like that. And clearer communication can actually help everyone in the organisation, not just neurodiverse individuals. Things like providing support, so appointing a buddy to someone um, who's neurodiverse in the organisation, they can help with advice, answering questions, sort of mentoring. Then there can also be environmental challenges. So creating the, the right work environment is equally critical. Many neurodiverse people have sensory processing issues. So issues with lighting, sound, smells, textures. So things like, you know, softer lighting, noise cancelling headphones or positioning the individual in a quiet area of the office can all help employees feel comfortable and be productive. And I think, Aaron, you mentioned earlier about these benefits actually spilling out onto the entire workforce, not just neurodiverse people. So things like better communication, things like working in a quieter work environment, just offering people options. So I think inclusivity really is about offering people choice. And um, if there's one thing I'd add, which I think is a really positive thing, is around the wide-scale adoption of, of hybrid work models is really going to benefit people with all sorts of challenges, whether it's disabilities or neurodiversity. So one simple thing that an employer can do is offer remote work. <laughs> and by offering remote work, it actually removes a lot of the stuff that is challenging for people with diversity when they're in the, in the workplace. I often think about my son who is autistic and 
he might grow up into a world that doesn't have offices. And if we don't have offices, you don't need to have a master's degree in emotional intelligence to get through your day. That to me is incredibly encouraging. It's one of the, one of the most interesting developments that's coming out of the wide-scale adoption of hybrid work. And that's how we started talking about hyper-personalisation, Aaron, was when we were talking about the setup at home is absolutely for, you. for yeah, yourself. exactly. And there's a quiet room to go to if you need to. Um, those sorts of things are just amazing. That's Aaron McEwen. And you also heard from Jared Lowison and Dr Emily Russo. I'm Lisa Leong. You've been listening to This Working Life. And until next week, keep working. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.